0: this podcast today is to ask the question, why do we obey God? Um, Do do we obey God because we fear him or do we obey him because we love him? And what's really cool about that question is the answer is yes. Uh, we, We need to obey God because we fear him, but we also need to obey God because we have a true love for him, a genuine love for him. Or ask it this way, Why do I treat my brethren or my spouse uh, right? Why do I treat them the way that God wants me to? Um, Because he told me to or because I love them? Again, the answer is yes to that. And so what we're going to talk about today is how, yes, there is a level of obedience that we need to have because God commands us. But there is also a level of obedience that we have um, because we love our brethren and because we love other people. And this is a tactic that the apostles actually employed. This is something we see the Apostle Paul specifically using. And we're going to look at three examples today of times where Paul doesn't command the brethren, but he appeals to them for love uh, or with love. So what do you think about that idea, Jeff? Yeah, I think, you know, when we think about um, John 3, 16,
1: God so loved the world uh, that he gave his only begotten son. God's motivated by love, and he wants us to learn to be motivated by love. Uh, I think you're right in terms of the fact that there's kind of a dual motivation, and I would go so far as to say, I think for many of us, uh, we kind of grow in, in which of those motivations is most prominent. Um, maybe at the first, we become aware that we are separated from God by sin, and we're in danger of eternal condemnation, and we have the chance to avoid that and have eternal life, and so so we respond to the gospel. But over time, the motivation grows to be more about look what God has done for us and appreciation. And we're motivated by love.
0: Yes, absolutely. And isn't this exactly what we see with children? I mean, this is something I'm experiencing with uh, now my daughter, who's going to turn two in December she is certainly getting disciplined in different ways for disobeying or when she knows something is a no-no and she reaches and grabs it anyways, and maybe it's a little a smack on the hand or, you know, different little ways to punish her for, for not obeying. And it gets to the point where I hope she's listening to me and obeying me because she knows if I don't do this, there's a consequence to the action that, um, that, that will come if I don't obey. But I also am hoping as she grows older, that I'm not always having to discipline her in those ways. I'm hoping that she will obey me simply because I said so, simply because she loves me so much and knows that I have the best, her best interest in mind as I tell her to do or to listen to me on different things. So Jeff, I know you raised four godly good kids. And so I'm sure you understand that balance as well.
1: Well, yeah. And you know, you, you can not only see it in children. I mean, you can see it. You have a new puppy. I do. Yes. Uh, You you can see it in, in, uh, in training a dog, a a dog learns to want to please you. Um, and, and, but, but sometimes
0: you have to use some discipline, especially early on to get them to that point. Yes, that's exactly right. Excellent point. So the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that the apostles have authority. Uh, would you agree with that, Jeff, if the apostle said, jump 10 feet, I got to find a way to jump 10 feet. I mean, that, that that is the amount of authority that we see them having in the scriptures. And who did that authority start with? Well, it, you know, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says that all authority has been given to me. He has the authority. That's right.
1: So, so the apostles' authority is not inherent in themselves. Chase, I don't know, were you planning to talk about the statement when Jesus says to Peter, and later to the apostles,
0: whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven? To talk about that? Yes, exactly so. So yeah, in my head, I just had a few different passages as we think about Jesus handing off authority to the apostles. And really, if you just want to stick with Matthew's gospel, I think it's really cool to kind of follow those. So the first instance that this happens is in Matthew chapter 10, in verse one. And this is when Jesus is going to send the 12 disciples out. And uh, Matthew 10, verse one, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And it goes on to list who those specific 12 men were that Jesus gave this authority to. And so it's very clear, Jesus is the one who had the authority to do that as the son of man, as the son of God. And now he's handing off that responsibility. He still has it, but he's giving it to them to also be able to do. So there's some authority that they had from there. And then if you fast forward a little bit to Matthew chapter 16, exactly where Jeff was just referencing, Jeff, you want to take that away? Look at what? Jesus well, you have says, this Peter. passage
1: where where Jesus says, uh, you know, he's asking about who, who men say he is. Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And there are all the various answers. And and then he asks them, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he makes the famous statement, uh, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I'll build my church, and uh, a play on the name Peter. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. His church is going to overcome death. Verse 19, I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. These keys seem to, to be the, the keys of admission to the kingdom of heaven, the king, the keys for loosing and binding, what is required and what is uh, not required. And, and yet there's something in the wording there that I think is important, Chase. You know, some would read that and think that what that's saying is the apostles got to make it up as they go. Right. But very strictly, if you translate it very strictly, and the old, the old new American standard does this, uh, whatsoever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. In other words, they were to bind what God had bound, and they were to lose what God had loosed. So even here, it's not a matter of them having intrinsic authority. What they have is the authority to teach what God has said.
0: That's exactly right, and that's what we want to point out. And isn't that the word apostle? Doesn't it just simply mean sent out ones? Who, yeah. they're, who they're sent out by? They're sent out by Jesus. They're sent out by God, the one who yeah. has the absolute authority. Yeah. Well, you know, Okay, first, Jeff. The verb
1: apostello means mm-hmm. I send away. And, right. and then the noun apostolus is a noun form of that. So one who is sent out, sent away.
0: Yes, that is so cool. And so, so to your point, so Jesus says that here to Matthew, or to, excuse me, to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. And uh, a lot of people love to run to that and say, see, Peter, he's the one that this was told to. But isn't it true that Jesus actually repeats this a little bit later in Matthew's gospel? Two chapters later, Matthew the eighteenth chapter, and it's it's an interesting context because it's where Jesus yeah. is talking about if your brother sins against you, what do you do? Yeah, if your brother sins against you, you are to go and take it to them, uh, take it to him, talk to him about it, and um, that's the first thing that you do: show him his fault in pri- private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, then take one or two with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he still doesn't listen, then you take it to the church. And if he still refuses to listen, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there's kind of the varying degrees of how you handle a brother's sin. And it's right there at that point
1: when he says, then you let him be as the Gentile the publican." In other words, you are making a decision to recognize this person as outside the, the um, context of God's people. And he says, "Verily, that's where he says, verily I say to you, whatsoever things you shall bind on earth shall be bounded, have been bound in heaven. Whatsoever things you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And by the way, Chase, you know, people like to quote the next verse, uh, or actually verse 20,
0: uh, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Yeah, that's right. And they sometimes kind of mean that, oh, well, if two or three of us are together and we're singing or we're doing something spiritual then god is with us yeah and that's not exactly what the context of this no passage it's in this is context all. where it's talking about the authority of the apostles to bind what god has
1: bound and particularly the application here would be in the matter of somebody who will not repent of the sin
0: and the church is going to say we're going to let him be as a gentile and the two or three that come with them there in verse 16 as well yeah. um, i think that's the that's also part of the context too so here, the apostles, not just Peter, but the others as well, have this authority. But as Jeff emphasized, it's the authority given to them from heaven, that uh, they are to bind what God's will is on everybody. And so, when we get to the New Testament, uh, Jeff, can you think of some instances where the apostles are laying down law that really isn't anything perhaps that we saw Jesus explicitly say, but they're saying things by way of command and not by way of just suggestion?
1: You know there's, there's an interesting passage in first Corinthians chapter seven where Paul uses the expression not I but the Lord and then not the Lord but I and it seems that the distinction is in one instance he's talking about something Jesus actually addressed directly while on earth and in the other instance he's talking about something that is from Jesus but it's not something Jesus explicitly addressed on earth um so So you remember in John the 14th chapter, I think this is an important passage, in John the 14th chapter. Um, So verse 25, 26, 27, uh, these things I've spoken unto you, Jesus says to, to the 12, while yet abiding with you, but the comforter, even the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So after Jesus has gone back to the Father, the Holy Spirit was to come, and he would not only remind them of the things Jesus said during the three years he was with them on earth, but he would also teach them the things that they would need to be teaching. So the apostles, even if they were saying something that was not what Jesus said while on earth, they're not just making up their own rules, they are speaking what is coming from heaven. Yes, that's exactly right.
0: I love the way you put that. And, and, it, and it makes sense because I'm even thinking about in Acts 2, after Peter and the 11 take their stand and deliver that amazing um, uh, speech on what they need to do to be saved and the fact that the Lord has come and he's ready to forgive them. You remember what, how that ends in Acts 2, 42? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer um it's the apostles doctrine is another translation there but it ultimately comes back to what god said uh, well and and you think about it when in ephesians
1: 2 it talks about uh jews and gentiles reconciled to god in one body they're of the same household of god uh it talks about this house being built on a foundation christ jesus is the cornerstone but the foundation uh is the apostles and prophets how do prophets fit into this? Well, again, a prophet is a mouthpiece for God, somebody who speaks by direct revelation. So you have apostles along with the prophets who are getting direct revelation from heaven, and they are uttering that to God's people to teach them how they
0: need to walk. Yes, amen. So I think we read a couple things, right? Like, so I'm thinking about Galatians 5. Uh, This is what Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 2. Behold, I Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. That sounds, that sounds pretty stern. That's authoritative. I mean, that, that's exactly what that is. And, and Paul is not just saying this as, oh, well, if, if you kind of feel like it, then yeah, I guess it's fine. No, it's, this is right. This is what I, you need to listen to. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. I was just getting ready for a second Corinthians class on chapter one, where Paul will open up most of his letters it's a majority of them by saying Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Right. There's a reason why he's saying he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. They need to listen to him. That's why. Yeah. And then uh, think about when Peter tells wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to deal with your wives in an understanding way. We got to listen. Uh, we we don't get to sit there and debate that. Peter said it, so we need to obey it. But part of the lesson today is is there are times that the apostles, instead of just laying out the law, they will tell us to think about love. Think about loving our brethren. And there's three places I wanted to look at today that will, I think, make that point quite clear. And the first one is in the book of Philemon. Um, So if everyone who's listening wants to find the book of Hebrews and then just kind of look to the left a little bit, you should find the book of Philemon. Um, And so, Jeff, what do we know about Philemon? Well, Philemon
1: uh, seems to be a slave owner. He seems to be a Christian who lives in, the, in Turkey, uh, what would be modern day Turkey, um, in the, probably in the city of Colossae, and the church meets in his house, um, but he has had a slave named Onesimus who has run away and has come to Paul, where Paul is in prison, and Paul has begotten Onesimus in his bonds. That is, apparently, Paul, while a prisoner, has taught the gospel to Onesimus, and now he is going to have a new relationship with uh, with Philemon.
0: Yes, that's right, and there's a couple verses I want to point out to just kind of show the character that Philemon apparently had. Uh, Look at verse 2, and to Ephia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, soldier, and to the church in your house. So, apparently, the church there um, and probably in Colossae there, is meeting in the household of Philemon. Look at verse 5. Paul says, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. So that's pretty evident. He's, he's housing the church in his home. And then in verse 7, for I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So apparently from the very beginning of this, is Philemon a loving brother? Very much so. Yeah, that's the, and, and you know,
1: it's it's interesting how often. And I don't want to take us too far away from Fleeman, but just for a second, Paul, ahead even ahead. when he writes to the church at Corinth and all the things he has to say to correct the church at Corinth, he starts out thanking God for them and commending them. We we have an expression, uh, you can catch more flies with honey than vinegar. I don't know why we want to catch the flies unless we're killing them. So I'm not sure how this is a good illustration, <laughs> But nonetheless. But the 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 point is, uh, you can use a carrot or you can use a
0: stick, and sometimes the carrot is going to be more effective. Yes, that's exactly right. And so I I think maybe it's not the perfect way to put it, but Paul's buttering up Philemon and sorts of in some ways. He's saying you're a good brother, you love people, and that's why I'm about to ask you this question. And so and it's not insincere, but it's right. appealing to her his his better his better. Um, motives, his, his higher... Exactly. Yeah. But I want us to look at what Paul says before he appeals to love. In verse 8, Paul says, uh, excuse yeah, verse 8, therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. Yeah. We'll stop there. <laughs> so, Philemon, uh, apparently, he's in a pretty good situation right now financially. He has this slave that's come back to him that Paul will tell us is useful to him. And Paul starts off whatever he's about to ask by saying, I am confident that I could order you to do what I'm about to ask you to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Based off of what authority will Paul say that? Well, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's writing on behalf of King Jesus. And so he has confidence that he can command Philemon with what he's about to say. But in verse nine, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person that is sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf, he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of that of your own free will. So Paul comes at him, and i don't know how you take this jeff but i think Paul's saying i want onesimus back it was the right thing to do yeah. to send onesimus back to his owner that's where he was supposed to go back to if he was truly repenting he had to go back but now paul is saying forgive him and please let him come back to me cuz he's useful to me what do you think well, about that
1: i'm i'm not sure uh, you know paul could be saying i would really like you to send onesimus back to me or he could be saying just, just to let you know how useful Onesimus is now, I'd love to have him here with me. So you, you treat him as somebody who is a useful brother and, and not just as a uh, forced laborer.
0: Yes, exactly. And to be fair, to just point in verse 15, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while so that you would have him back forever. Um, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. And so, yeah. I, I but regardless, Paul is trying to get, uh, excuse me, Philemon to be motivated by love for his new brother in Christ to forgive him and perhaps even to let him go in some capacity or another. We got a um, comment, and so I love that. Yep. We yeah, we got go a comment
1: here. Um, uh, Galatians five three teaches all or nothing, just like Hebrews seven twelve. I'd, I'd actually have to look those up to to. I, I, we, I think we, that's going back a few minutes in the conversation. But then the comment is, encouragement is just as important as rebuke. And you know, uh, you, you were talking about raising children earlier. Yeah. The, the Bible talks about fathers not provoking their children to wrath, that they be not discouraged. Uh, a father who only rebukes and never commends, never praises, um, frustrates his children. They get to the point where they don't, they give up. They don't believe they can ever please their father. And um, so that, I think that's an important thing. And I think that's kind of what you're, you're helping us see here that an apostle of Jesus Christ might have the authority to command, but he can also appeal to the best, best motivations of the audience and say, look, you, you really want to serve God and you should think about what God has done for you so that you'll all the more want to serve God. And um, that's where we need to get to.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And kind of going along with that, I think you see that out of Paul. We were talking about this before the episode started, but in second Corinthians, Paul will use some of that same language as he's trying to appeal to them, and he's really trying to mend what could be a a perhaps partially broken relationship with the Corinthians, and he does so by appealing to their love of the gospel and their love for Paul, Um, but that kind of leads us into the next passage. Uh, Let's go ahead and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I wish we had time to just Maybe another time we can do an overview of Second Corinthians because it is so different from the other letters, but it is very rich. So Jeff, just kind of bring me up to speed. Um, there's a bit of a shift in what's happening in Second Corinthians at this point. What's going on in 2 Corinthians 8? What's Paul going to ask them to do?
1: Well, Paul is on his way to Corinth. He has already right. written them uh, a little bit earlier when he was in Ephesus. He'd sent them one letter asking them to be setting aside funds for needy Christians in Jerusalem. And now he has arrived in Macedonia. And right. the people in Macedonia have been very generous in offering help, financial help for the needy Christians in Jerusalem that Paul can take there. And so now Paul writes a second letter. And in 2 Corinthians, he is reminding the Corinthians that he's on his way and that they have made this commitment to set aside these funds. And he is he's really encouraging them to come through. To do what they've committed to do. And as he does so, he is talking about look, look what the Macedonians have done. Yeah. And you know, they are impoverished people, and yet they've really been generous. Yes.
0: yes. And there, there are kind of two verses I want to look at in chapter eight about the Macedonians. Because if, if you came to this text and and let's just ask the question, can anyone say that the Macedonians only gave because they were commanded to? No. And then yeah exactly then look there at uh at verse two uh talking about the churches in macedonia paul says that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality verse four begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints yeah they're they're not doing this because paul came in and said everyone give 10 percent they're doing this because they want yeah. to. Paul said they're, they're practically begging us to be able to help the saints that are in Jerusalem. And, and, I've and had I that. love that. I've Go had ahead. that happen. I, I might be traveling to
1: some third world country, or I might be going to see somebody even in this country who's in a bad way. And some brother or sister will come up and say, take this. I, I want you to take this and, and use it to help those people. And, I, and, and and it might be a circumstance where I say where I say, you know what? I, I think we've got it covered. I think we got and I say, No, I want to be a part of this. I want to help you take this. And that's kind of what you get here that the Macedonians are saying, Paul, we
0: want to be a part of this. Yes, exactly. And so Paul Paul's going to take this example and he's going to say, All right, Corinthians, I, I need you to listen. I need you to follow in their footsteps. Because as he says, like in verse seven. Just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Paul says, I'm not going to command you to do this because I don't have to because you love your brethren. And I know you do. You've been diligent in all these other ways. You can be diligent in your love for the saints as well. And so I I love that idea. And so he kind of gets into it with them. Um, Of course, starting with verse nine, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. I like to say he pulled the Jesus card, right? Hey, Jesus did this for you. I mean, he he himself was rich in heaven, but he was willing to become poor for your sake. Why won't you do that for your brethren in Jerusalem as well? If you love them, you'll do this. And, And to some degree... This approach here
1: is in part because of the the topic at hand. Um, The topic at hand is you need to give, but God truly does leave it up to the individual uh, to make a judgment as to what to give. Uh, But at the same time, we get over to chapter 9 in verse 6, and there's this principle. This I say, he that sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He that sows bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Let each man do according as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. In other words, don't do it just just as a matter of compulsion. That's what my translation says, yeah. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, it says not under compulsion. All right. But he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, want to do it.
0: And And then do it generously. So I'll just make something clear from our conversation earlier. I think the apostles had absolute authority to come in and say all right everybody i need you to give about eight percent of what you have i know all of you can so give eight percent ten percent whatever but that's not what they do Let, uh, let's they appeal up. to the love for the brethren
1: let's back up if that had been the word from heaven they could have done that
0: right yes that's probably but, a more clear way to but put that they, yeah. but
1: they really didn't have a word from heaven at least it doesn't appear to demand eight sure. percent or, or whatever so yes, I w- there were- I, would, I would say yeah, I would say that in this instance Paul is doing exactly what the spirit called upon him to do.
0: Okay. So you so you're suggesting, yeah, so because they, we don't have anything recorded where the Spirit was saying they all needed to give 10%, that's why they wouldn't say something like that. Yeah,
1: well, and the fact that he says God um, wants, he says, let each man do as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. Uh, God and, and, and for example, earlier on, he says, uh, it's acceptable as a man has and not as he has not. Some, some people yeah. might not have had anything to give, 8%. Yeah, of, exactly. I, I guess if you've got nothing, you can still give 8%, because 8% of nothing <laughs> 8 is, times is zero. Is nothing. zero. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so maybe the 8% works. But, but the point you're getting at is that this is not just in this case that we see Paul using this kind of approach. Uh, we saw it in Philemon. Uh, you, you do see various places where the approach is, it very well could be, command. You know, in Acts chapter 10, Peter commanded that these people should be baptized in the name of of Jesus Christ. But there are plentiful passages where the apostle teaches looking for that motivation of love, appealing to the people's best, most noble
0: motives and saying, uh, you need to, to learn to want to do this you need to want to do this yes amen and, and so let me just point out maybe one other thing in this passage that i think is cool as we as we think about this jeff is it fair to say that between these groups of of christians the macedonians the corinthians and then the saints in jerusalem is it a mixed bag of christians both jew and gentile oh yeah
1: yeah mm-hmm.
0: absolutely and so if you're having a hard time accepting another race or another group or whatever you whatever word you want to insert there, and yet you are commanded to be united in Christ, yep. what a great way to help you with that by financially helping out someone in that oh, situation. You know, that is so
1: true. When you help somebody, when you do somebody a favor, uh, you become. In, it's not just
0: they become endeared to you. You become endeared to them. You become vested in them. Exactly. And I do wonder if that's part of what's going on here. And I wonder if that's what Paul's point is in verse 13 of chapter eight, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by, by way of equality, at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their needs so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. I used to look at that and say, oh, is he just saying, you know, well, you'll scratch their back and then they'll scratch yours later. It's like, no, I think it's deeper than that. I, I think Paul's getting at a profound way for them to be united in Christ because of the equality that is now there in Jesus. So is that fair to say? I, I, really, I really think that when we, we talk about racial
1: conflicts today, we need to go back to the New Testament and look at the picture. First of all, understand what it was like in that world to be a Jew and know how the Gentiles thought of you, or to be a Gentile and know how the Jews thought of you. We were in Matthew 16 or Matthew 18 a moment ago, let him be unto thee as the Gentile and the publican. That's language that they understood because Jews would not associate with Gentiles and publicans were tax collectors whom they regarded as as sinful and they wouldn't associate with them. That, and Peter says in Acts 10, when he comes to the home of Cornelius, a Gentile, Peter, a Jew. He says, you yourselves know how it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to join himself or to come unto one of another nation. We're just not supposed to do this. And yet, God has showed me that I should call no man common or unclean. And, and so then you look at the body of Christ in which Jews and Gentiles are united to God and have access through one Christ, through, through the one sacrifice, through the cross. And in one body, they're reconciled to God. And then in each city where there are Jews and Christians, they didn't form a Jewish church on one side of town and a Gentile church on the other side of town. They came together and, and what they had in common was critical, and that was Christ. And so Paul could write and say, There's neither Jew nor Greek. That distinction doesn't exist. If we could look at that and understand how we're supposed to treat one another and then, and then put that into practice. I think that would that would solve the racial is not going to solve the racial conflict problem in the world. There's always been there's always been a conflict between ethnicities and racial groups throughout history. That's going to be there. But within the kingdom of God, it is to be solved by our realizing what we all are in Christ.
0: Amen. Wow, that was that was really well put, Jeff. And I just think about all the different division that's going on today. You've already made this point. It's all resolved in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, That's what it all comes back to. And so I'll point out one other thing that I love about this passage along what you were just saying. The end of chapter nine in verse 13, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I think it can be tempting uh, whenever we do good for somebody and we're giving to, to want to kind of take the glory for ourselves, right? Oh, wow. Look at this. uh, Look at this nice thing that I did for this group of people. But Paul brings it back and say, when you're being motivated by love to give, you recognize that what you're giving really wasn't yours to begin with, was it? Yeah. yeah. It, it was the Lord's, mm-hmm. and you're going to glorify God in your giving. Mm-hmm. Um, so at every turn, th- this is really a humbling passage because it's it's Paul trying to motivate the Corinthians to give for their love for the saints, but also for their love of God as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, you made the point earlier, uh, John three sixteen God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son he 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 didn't keep when we think of loving something we think of keeping it but the biblical example of love is sacrificing giving away Um, as jeff and libby just gave their dog to sal uh, to uh rebecca and i well i I thought you paid a little bit for it yeah i did i did (laughs) But still at, at a remarkable discount i know that so um but jeff i got one other passage i want to look at today that i think makes this point quite well and it's in first corinthians chapter eight and nine so it's kind yeah. of cool that this will this will match up pretty well yeah so maybe i should have started in first corinthians we're going on, we're going backwards now but needless to say if if anyone listening is a, is a good bible student in first corinthians they got a lot of problems don't they a bunch yeah it, yeah there's you know, there's a, there's a
1: <laughs> if, we were to, if we were to encounter a congregation today that uh, was um, going, the people are taking each other to law. They're, they're together on Sunday, but on Monday, they're in court arguing with each other with their respective lawyers. Uh, some of them are denying that there's a resurrection from the dead. Uh, you go in and observe the Lord's Supper, and it's just like a, a party where you're just pigging out, and they're neglecting some uh you, They're justifying fornication. There's a guy in the middle of the congregation who is sleeping with his father's wife, and everybody's okay with that. In fact, they're kind of proud that they can put up with that. Uh, you've got all that stuff going on.
0: Uh, we if we counted that today. We would run. <laughs> yes, yeah. And it it's hard for me to even think about Paul writing to this group because it's like, ah, man, I I don't even know where to begin with you all. <laughs> you know. And so, but yeah. Paul, of course, but, but where does he, he begins,
1: start? Go ahead. Yeah. Where does he I was begin? gonna say
0: <laughs> I was gonna say he starts with the wisdom of God. That, that's how I was well, gonna but sum but it up.
1: Before that, before that, he begins with, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if ever there was a hard sentence to write, <laughs> yeah, that's right. But of course he was thankful. Uh, yeah. it, of course he was. And well, what he's
1: doing and- here, he's kind of right at the top, reminding them of what God has done for them. And
0: that's in chapter the,
1: at the end of chapter seven.
0: Or no, do you right mean here, in chapter one? Right oh, okay. okay
1: one. Gotcha. And, and so he said, Look, what what the grace of God which he has given you in Christ Jesus, that kind of puts everything that follows, you know, that demands that demands something of it. We can talk about demanding or commanding, but I tell you, when somebody acts sacrificially out of love on your behalf, that demands something.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah, well said. So in 1 Corinthians, like I said, a lot of problems, but, but one of the, the many issues that Paul is going to address in chapter 8 and 9, um, and I'll just... Uh, do you mind to read that, Jeff, the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 8?
1: Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If any man thinks he knows anything, he knows not yet as he ought to know. But if any man loves God the same is known by him.
0: All right, sum up these first three verses. Paul appeals to love. Okay, guys, all right. This is what it all comes back to. Knowledge is what puffs up, but love edifies. And so he goes into the knowledge side of things in verses four through 13. And what he points out to them is, look, guys, we all know that the gods out there that these animals are being sacrificed to we all know that they're not real gods, okay? We, we, we get that. We realize that. But in eating those animals, you are severely hurting some of your brother's conscien- uh, consciences because of that. Yeah, and, and so now he's trying to get them to think about, even though you might have the knowledge that you're right, you can still be wrong in your action. Yeah. And this is not a pro-vegetarian passage. He's talking about eating these
1: animals as a sacrifice to these pagan deities and excusing yourself because you know the pagan deity isn't real. He says, you know, you can rationalize it all you want to, but the fact is you are harming your brother in Christ who's just coming out of idolatry, and you're going to lead him right back into
0: idolatry. Yes, and here's what I love. In chapter 10, you, you skip chapter 9, you get over to chapter 10 and verse 21, and Paul will say all, there excuse me, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? And He'll say, You're not allowed to eat that stuff, anyways. Right. Right. So He he lays down the law law there. Exactly. But But the first thing He does before He gets there is He appeals to the love for their brethren. Right. Think about what you're doing. You are being a stumbling block to your brother or sister. And I don't know what your take on chapter nine is, uh, Jeff, but my personal opinion is is Paul uses himself as an example. Exactly. He he is trying to get them to realize that he had a right, as he worked with them for a year and a half, to take income for being a gospel preacher. Totally fine for him to do that, right? Uh, Specifically in verse 14, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But Paul had given up that right. He points out that several of the other apostles and preachers had been doing been doing it, but he gave up that right because he loves his brethren, and that's really what it comes back to with the with this congregation. All those problems that Jeff listed off for us at the very beginning of, of this section, it all comes back to the problem that they don't love their brethren, which yeah. is why I think First Corinthians thirteen it, it's it's the pinnacle of the entire chapter of the entire book, it, as Paul will say, uh, love is not puffed up. It's not arrogant. Go ahead, Jeff.
1: Well, and, and, and you, you mentioned that. First Corinthians 13, where he talks about love, the things he says about love are the things that he's been saying for the first 12 chapters the Corinthians aren't. You know, he's how many times has he said the Corinthians are puffed up? And then he gets yep. to chapter 13, says love is not puffed up.
0: You can almost outline the book of 1 Corinthians just from chapter 13. You, you can, you can. So, so you're right. In 1 Corinthians
1: 8, 9, and 10, where he's dealing with this matter of participating in these idol feasts, he, he's going to end up saying you can't do it. But before he goes there, he says, you've got a love problem. You've got an attitude problem. And you need to fix your attitude. You need to look at my example, but I was willing to give up sacrifice for your sake. And you need to have that attitude in regard to others.
0: That's exactly right. And so so that's the application for us, right? Maybe it's not a specific meat sacrifice to idol situation, but perhaps there is something that you have a biblical or logical right to as a Christian. But if you know that it's causing your brother to stumble, or if you know that it's severely bothering their conscience, that, that you are participating in that thing, why not just give it up? Why not just... Stop. Why not give up the right that you have for the sake that you love your brother or sister in Christ? So this whole approach, God is our creator, and He is going to be our judge.
1: And He is He is an all-authority. He is just and, and, and we're going to stand before Him without excuse. But the fact is, <laughs> sorry about that. The, the fact is. <clears throat> Take the book of Ephesians, for example, as, as Paul writes the book of Ephesians, he spends the first three chapters, he could, he could spend the first three chapters saying, God is gonna judge you and you're gonna go to heaven or hell. And that'd be, that would be entirely appropriate. In Hebrews, the second chapter, there is the writer, uh, there is the, the message, how, how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Um, and and uh, in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, uh, he talks about what what is left for the person who sins willfully it's a certain it's a fearful expectation of fire that shall devour the adversary and, and that's that's a proper motivation. But look at what he does in Ephesians. Uh, we start off and he talks about all these spiritual blessings that are in Christ, specifically such things as being uh, adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Um, he talks about, Uh, glory of his grace being freely bestowed on us in the beloved. This is in verse six. He talks about the forgiveness of our trespasses, the riches of God's grace. It's it's an interesting theme in Ephesians how often you see riches or wealth being talked about, the spiritual wealth. And, And he talks about us being made God's inheritance, that the idea that we're exalted to the position of being chosen as God's special inheritance. That's a remarkable thought that we sinful people could be something that God would desire as his prized possession. You come on down in chapter two, and after he talks about how Christ was dead and then made alive, he goes on to say, and that's what you were. You were dead, being dead in your trespasses and sins. God made you and us alive in chapter two and verses four or five and six. God being rich in mercy for his great love. Wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, made us to sit with him in the heavenly places. So here we were dead in our trespasses, but like Christ was raised from the dead to sit in the heavens, we've been exalted to the heavens. And and then he comes on down and, and he's talking to Gentiles, especially. And so he talks to these Gentiles and he reminds them of where they were in verse 11 and 12. Remember, this is chapter 2, 11 and 12. Remember that once you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And what he goes on and says from that, from that point is that, but. The Jews who are near and you who are far off, God has brought you together in Christ and through the cross of Christ, he's reconciled you both to God. And then in verse 19, you're no more strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God and made into a holy temple of the Lord, a habitation of God. You people who were so far from the house of God now are the house of God. And he builds that all the way through the end of chapter 3. And you get to chapter 4 and verse 1, and he says... Therefore, walk worthy of your calling. The the whole book of Ephesians is, look what God has done for you. Therefore, you need to walk in a manner commensurate with what God has done for you. Yeah, he could say, and elsewhere the Bible does say, you need to obey God because if you don't, it's going to be eternal destruction. Jesus says that in Matthew, the 25th chapter. But in Ephesians, it's, look what God has done for you. Therefore,
0: you ought to be motivated to respond in loving obedience. Yes. And I think what Jeff just outlined for us is very consistent with a lot of the rest of the new Testament. Yeah, it is. Um, Even Jesus's, Jesus's own teaching is motivated by love for people and in and, and effect us as well, our love for God and our love for other people. Um, not to say that we can't listen because of the authority God has, but ultimately the point is we, we obey because we love the Lord um, and we love our brethren. So Well, we're out of time for today. Uh, This has been fun. Thanks, Jeff, for doing this with me. And Lord willing, we'll pick up. um, I don't know who's next week, but we'll figure it out next Wednesday. Thanks, guys.